Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Jacob Greer, a writer who has covered various aspects of vice policy for more than a decade. His new book is The Rediscovery of Tobacco, Smoking, Vaping, and the Creative Destruction of the Cigarette. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Jacob. Thank you for having me on. Why the rediscovery of tobacco? I don't think we, we lost it, did we? I think we lost the sense that tobacco can be good. Uh, that's that's why I call it a rediscovery because the the book opens with the discussion of how when Europeans first came, uh, at least for that period, first came to North America uh, with Columbus and came across tobacco for the very first time, uh, and they had no idea what it was. You know, they were given leaves by the indigenous people, and some of the things they were given, they knew what they were, and then they had these mysterious aromatic leaves that they they just had no clue. <laughs> like, what are these for? They're like, they had big torches and stuff. You write yeah. about, yeah, yeah, just like, all, all different weird ways of smoking it too. Right, and so they they finally figured out eventually by going to shore and going inland in Cuba what what smoking was about, um, and we sort of lost sight of this idea of tobacco being something that's new and interesting and has qualities that are worth pursuing uh, through quality tobacco like cigars or pipes because of the ubiquity of the cigarette. So especially post-1960s, once we found out that cigarettes are exceptionally lethal, uh, smoking has been stigmatized. We've rightly wanted to get away from smoking, uh, especially with regard to cigarettes. Uh, but it's become impossible to even think about tobacco in any kind of positive light. So part of what I wanted to focus on as someone who uh, smokes not habitually, but every once in a while enjoys a really nice cigar or a nice of, a nice pipe of tobacco, uh, is to think about how tobacco might have some redeeming factors. Uh, and also with the development of e-cigarettes now, uh, and also with snus in Scandinavia, uh, we're seeing ways that people can consume nicotine, uh, if not tobacco itself, uh, in a way that's much less harmful to health. Uh, and so that opens up possibilities worth discussing about whether that also has redeeming qualities or not. So the idea is to talk about both the original, uh, at least European, discovery of tobacco, but then also uh, to change the way we think about it now, too, and give it a fresh look. It's interesting that tobacco... Uh I mean, of all these vices, it is the one that there's a concerted effort to make it just disappear. And I mean, because we know drinking is bad, and coffee and all these other things are bad, but but it does seem that tobacco is a little bit different. And that seemed to start about, I would say, in the '90s. It seems to me about that time we got the settlement. But I would get to that later. I think we I like talking about the beginning. Um, so we get the new world. They bring tobacco back. But even early on, smoking at smoking and tobacco use had critics, uh, including some royal members of the royal family or kings. Yes, yeah. So one of the most famous anti-tobacco tracts ever was uh, King James um, counterblast against tobacco. So uh, first, uh, one sorry, do we believe he actually wrote this himself, like King James, or did he like call ask his clerk to write it? Was yeah, he known to be writing a bunch? I've never, you know, I'm I don't to actually of, know that. That's deeper into the history than yeah, uh, that I could comment on. I just I can't name another thing that like a king wrote. But yeah, whoever, whoever wrote it has a way with words. It's a really good piece. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not exactly scientifically informed, no, <laughs> as no. you would expect <laughs> in the 1600s. Uh, but it is a really interesting piece, and he talks about uh, some of the contradictory or seemingly contradictory effects of tobacco, which is really interesting. Uh, and he sort of makes fun of the idea that. Uh, people were promoting tobacco as a cure-all. And they would say it's good for anything. And so he would say, you smoke to wake up in the morning, and then you also smoke to go to sleep at night. Well, <laughs> what is this drug really doing? This makes no sense. Uh, and we actually know that the way nicotine is used in the body, it does have these kind of dual effects. Uh, but it, it certainly didn't seem accurate at the time. Uh, but you also had a lot of uh, 
medical flimflam about tobacco at the time as well. Uh, and if you go back uh, to that period uh, in England, people were mostly using pipes and smoking it. Uh, but elsewhere in Europe, uh, it was a lot of snuff, uh, which is, if people don't know that, that's when you grind up dried tobacco leaves so they're really fine and then take them straight up your nose, like just inhale it. Extremely uh, popular for a very long time. Yeah, which is hard to imagine now. I mean, I've, I've met one person in my entire life who's an actual snuff user now, and he was a, a very eccentric bar owner in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> and he just pulled it out while we were at the bar and, and did snuff. And I was like, oh, I've never seen that done. Um, it's only slightly more strange than pipe smoking I yeah. think, at this point, but definitely more strange. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and then the other way it was used was actually as a medical poultice. So people would take tobacco leaves, take them in a mortar and pestle and grind it up with some vinegar and some other things. And then it was rumored if you had a sore or a bite or even cancer, uh, you could apply this to your skin and hold it there uh, and wrap, wrap it around your wound uh, and the tobacco would cure it. This was believed by a lot of people at the time. So a lot of, especially in continental Europe, uh, tobacco was originally popularized as a medical cure-all. Uh, and then, of course, people realized it's also fun and addictive. And, and then we were off to the races uh, on, onward to the present day. And there have been you, – you write about the sort of anti-smoking. It's not, it wasn't as strong or as successful as alcohol prohibition, but there was also a concerted anti-smoking movement in this country. Yeah, and it was a really interesting period. It was at the same time. Um, people forget about it today, but in that early time from, uh, say, I think 1900 to 1927 – I think there were uh, seven, 15 states at least had uh, banned cigarettes in some form. Uh, sometimes it was just the sale. Sometimes it was even possession. Uh, and I think the last one was Kansas to finally repeal that in 1927. Uh, and you know, it was not a medically informed opposition. You know, pe people knew that smoking caused some illnesses. Like people knew that it, you, know, you could start coughing. They knew you might get oral cancer from it. Uh, but nobody knew about the medical science we have today. Uh, so you had more moral reformers like Lucy Paston Gage and then industrial, industrialists like Henry Ford and Thomas Edison who believe that cigarette smoking in particular uh, sets you on a path to degeneracy. Uh, so you started smoking and uh, Lucy Paston Gage thought that you had a, uh, a substance called furfural in smoke that would make you be compelled to drink. And I, I, I can I don't know what the substance is, but I can attest to that. <laughs> they do yes. go well yeah, together. They do go well together. Yeah, and then she was convinced that once you start drinking, you become a criminal. So it was you know the cigarette was the first step to a path to becoming a degenerate criminal. I'm hearing I, I'm hearing you got trouble from uh, Music Man in my head right now with the smoking. But, <laughs> right. so, so what about the cigarette? The 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 you write very interestingly about the actual invention as it's an industrial revolution to some extent story because you have loose leaf tobacco, rolling your own tobacco, pipe tobacco, cigars which I guess were hand rolled and stuff like that, but the cigarette was a was a pretty big innovation. Yeah, for sure. And it, it cigarettes existed in some form, perhaps even before Europeans got to the North America, you know, whether it's a cane tube or like a corn paper wrapper. You know, people were always smoking cigarettes in some way. Uh, and they had some popular popularity in Europe as well. Um, but to do that without any kind of industrialization, the cigarette was not a very practical item because you would have to pay somebody to take tobacco and roll it in a paper tube for you, which is a very labor-intensive process. And then by the time the cigarette gets to you, it might be damaged in transit. Uh, so most people, uh, one, they weren't smoking at all. In, in the 1800s in the U.S., chewing tobacco and chaw was the number one way to use tobacco. Then if you were smoking, you were probably smoking a pipe or a cigar, or maybe you were rolling your own. Uh, but this idea of buying a pack of ready-made cigarettes uh, was not very popular to begin with. Um, 
So you had two things that really changed this. Uh, one was the agricultural. You, uh, there was a change in the tobacco, uh, which we'd go into the reasons for. But basically, uh, instead of curing the tobacco over open flames, they switched to a flue system that directed the heat indirectly, which sounds inconse- inconsequential. But what this did was it ended up making the smoke much uh, lower pH and therefore easier to inhale. Uh, and so for the first time ever, we had people really trying to directly inhale tobacco smoke constantly, which, one, made it more addictive because it hits your bloodstream so much faster, uh, and two, uh, and worse, it exposed all your lung tissues to this tobacco smoke. So nobody knew at the time that this was going to be the effect, but this this happened. Uh, and then paired with that, they invented the uh, the Bonsack machine, which was the first commercially viable uh, commercial um, tobacco rolling machine in the U.S. So now instead of having you know hundreds of women you know rolling t- cigarettes by hand, you could have a machine uh, that could do the work of you know forty people in a minute. So it was a huge innovation. And uh, along with some tax cuts on tobacco that happened, you you now had a very addictive. Uh, very cheap to produce product uh, that was ready to just take over the market. And it still took time, but those two things really set the stage for the cigarette taking over the entire tobacco market in the U.S. and then around the world. And this, you're not a, it's clear from your book uh, that the cigarette is the problem here. You're not a fan. Uh, it, it, it's, it is very bad. It is a very, very good delivery system for addiction without the, I guess, the corollary pleasures for in, in the same way, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and I think people do obviously enjoy cigarettes. There's, as we'll talk about when we talk about the anti-smoking movement, people like to deny that there even is pleasure in it. Uh, I don't think that's really true. Uh, but yeah, I would say from a quality perspective, other forms of tobacco are certainly more interesting to me and to, I think, a, a lot of people. Uh, and so one of the questions is, how do we target cigarettes in some way, uh, whether through government by other means? I think people of goodwill want to see people not smoke cigarettes, uh, but still preserve these options to have these you know, quality artisanal side of the market, which is, uh, if not specifically targeted, at least caught in the crossfire of modern regulation and threatened with being wiped out. The uh, idea of cigarettes being dangerous... It seemed to be well. You 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 often see as a joke. They put the ads up that say you know nine out of ten doctors prefer camels or this one is the healthiest cigarette. And so it seemed like there was concern about that there you know coughing and things like this that there were health effects to cigarettes if they were making health claims about cigarettes uh, in some way. Yeah, the concern was definitely uh, in the air, so to speak. Um, even if people didn't know exactly what was happening, I, I think if you've talked to people who have smoked for decades, uh, you can't help but be aware that it's having you know a negative effect on your body. Like uh, people were not exactly in denial about that, although the companies uh, certainly tried to play up the the idea that theirs were for some reason healthier. Although they never had a really good reason. <laughs> there, was, there was never any logic behind the claim. Uh, in fact, sometimes it was completely manufactured. Um, like one example with the camel case uh, was they would go to doctor's conventions and they would arrange for every doctor to be given packs of camel cigarettes. So then when the surveyor goes around and asks the doctors at the convention, oh, what cigarettes do you smoke? And they pull them out and it's camel. Uh, suddenly, Campbell's the most popular choice of doctors. It's a completely manufactured <laughs> situation. Um, yeah, that's that's it's pretty shady. Yeah, but what set things off was a a real epidemic of lung cancer, which, uh, if you look at the beginning of the century, was virtually unknown. Extremely rare way to die. And there's a, an anecdote in the book about one of the early tobacco researchers who, when he was a, a medical student, was invited to an autopsy of a lung cancer patient. 
and uh, his the person teaching him told him you should come because you may never see this case again in your life. You may get through your entire medical career and never encounter a lung cancer patient again. Uh, and of course, the opposite happened. <laughs> it became a flood of lung cancer patients. Uh, and just uh, from the period of the end of World War I up to the 1940s, uh, you suddenly had this one form of cancer in particular taking off. And the mystery was why. Mm -hmm. Now, skipping forward a few decades, I think people have uh, know the story generally, but we get to the 90s and we start to see the first sort of backlash against smoking and it's something that you know concerns i think libertarians or civil libertarians to some extent especially these indoor smoking bans based on the theory of secondhand smoke in particular you do a good job of going over that literature like so what were the claims of secondhand smoke and, and what do we actually seem to know now well, it gets really really complicated and i i kind of divide it into kind of two eras so initially the the first concern was lung cancer and the concern was long term exposure and this makes sense. Like if you think about it, it's the same smoke. Uh, if a person inhaling it deeply, repeatedly is getting lung cancer from it, maybe there's some risk to being around it as well. And even if you're not taking it in deeply, maybe enough exposure over time, you're going to have a risk too. Uh, so the challenge was to find a way to study that risk. Uh, and to do that, you need to be able to compare populations of people who are exposed to, non to secondhand smoke and people who aren't. Uh, and the best way that people found to do that was women who don't smoke who are married to smokers, the idea being that when they're at home together, the, the husband is smoking indoors and the woman is not. So they studied these populations uh, and they looked at the rate of lung cancer trying to control for as many other factors as they could. Uh, and there are some early studies suggesting that there probably was a relationship. And it was uh, what they, they say, there's a dose-response relationship. So the more someone is exposed, the higher the risk. Uh, and so this is all indicating that at some level, at least, there is a risk there. Uh, it turned out this... As you repeated these studies and looked at more populations, uh, this effect tended to get a little smaller or non-existent. Um, it's, it, the, the challenge is it's such a small effect, even in the studies that find it, that it's hard to say consistently what the size is. And if you look at, uh, say, populations of smokers versus non-smokers, uh, at a minimum, a smoker is increasing their risk of lung cancer by 10 times. Sometimes 20, 30, depending on how narrowly you define it, you could see studies that claim a relative risk of 50 times. So it's a huge effect. So even if there's uncertainty, nobody is denying, at least nobody honest is denying. The tobacco <laughs> companies obviously denied it. But nobody honestly looking at the evidence would deny that link. Uh, with secondhand smoke, it's a lot harder to say what the risk is and uh, to even find the effect consistently. So if you look at the Surgeon General's report of 2006, which is a really thorough uh, summary of it, their risks are around 1.12 to 1.43 for a, very, a disease that's very rare to begin so with. So one would be no. So one would be no effect. No effect. So, okay, one and less than one would be a protective effect. Mm -hmm. uh, so a relative risk that low is, is it tells you it's hard to study, for one thing, and, and it just shows you there's a lot of uncertainty about it. Uh, but it, it is justified to say that, you know, if you are constantly exposed to secondhand smoke, perhaps there's this risk there, and that's totally legitimate. Uh, the second wave, I would say, started especially in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, was an attempt to sort of demonize even brief exposure to secondhand smoke. Uh, and this is where we started talking about cardiac effects uh, and where some of the science got really dodgy. <laughs> and some claims were made that... Uh, 
we're clearly impractical. Uh, well, Helena, Montana is a miracle place, apparently. Yeah, so that's the big one that I, that a lot of us who, who study this bring, bring up a lot. And this was uh, a case by a professor named Stanton Glantz at the University of California, San Francisco, who's uh, been a longtime anti-smoker advocate and researcher and who also gets uh, – he's very good at fundraising. He, he actually just got a $20 million grant from the FDA a couple years ago. Even now. But, um, yeah, in this study, they looked at Helena, Montana, which is not a big city. And uh, Helena had a six-month smoking ban. So they passed a smoking ban in all the bars and restaurants. Uh, and then six months later, uh, it was struck down by a judge. And they looked at the data and they said, well, during the smoking ban, heart attacks went way down. Uh, and then when the smoking ban ended, they went right back up. Uh, so they said, uh, without publishing the study, they said that uh, the smoking ban caused a 60% decline in heart attacks for the entire city. It's it's just insane to me that that was accepted. It, it doesn't sound plausible on his face. No, like, because you, the, the, uh, the flip side would be that that you would have heart attacks of unimaginable levels in places that hadn't banned smoking. Because we're talking about fleeting exposure in bars, and then there are other places where people have been getting exposed for twenty years, and they should be just dropping dead in the streets if this is even moderately true. Right, and at the same time, you'd ha California already had a smoking ban. So why are yeah. you studying the small town in Montana when you have an entire state you could be looking at? It doesn't pass the common sense test. Um, no, but they, but they sent it out as a press release uh, without the study being being done. So even if people wanted to critique the study, it didn't exist. Uh, and that didn't come out for, for another year. Uh, and so Michael Siegel, who's become a critic of this, who's a uh, epidemiologist at the Boston University School of Health, was uh, critiquing this. And he called it science by press release, where we, before you even do the work, you send it out to the press and then nobody can critique it. Uh, and as it turned out, they did finally publish a year later. They, re they uh, changed the observed reduction from 60 percent to 40 percent. Still astoundingly Yes, yeah, still astoundingly high. yes. And then uh, he actually wrote recently, he talked about the uncertainty of the estimate. Uh, when I critique this. And uh, what they actually found was at a st statistically significant level uh, that the actual effect could have been anywhere from 1% to 79%. So this just tells you that the data is so small that you can't form a reliable judgment about it. Uh, but anyway, th these kind of studies got picked up uh, and they were repeated around the country. And what happened was the bigger a population you looked at, the smaller the effect got. And depending on the study, it, sometimes they just got down to zero. Uh, so th this ended up being somewhat of a myth. I mean, no, I'm not saying that there's no effect, uh, but these huge effects that were used to popularize smoking bans certainly haven't held up. But isn't one percent? Let's take the lower end. Should we be subjecting people in bars to even a one percent greater risk of, of cancer or heart disease? Uh, isn't does any risk seems unacceptable in those situations? That's the tricky part. I mean, we. We would certainly like to imagine, uh, you know, removing all risk, but we know that's not possible, uh, and, and we don't do this in, in other jobs as well. Uh, one, as a customer, I think we can we can choose where to go and where, where we don't. And, and I do feel, as I talk about in the book, nobody wants to go back to the, the '60s. You know, it's a le totally legitimate complaint that it was hard to go out th in daily life and not be exposed to tobacco smoke. Uh, so I'm I'm not uh, arguing against that. Like I, but the the question is, should there be any exceptions? Should free adults have any places they can go and enjoy tobacco together? And if you talk to people in the anti-smoking movement, they'll say no. Uh, and I and I think at that point, uh, you really are coercing people and taking away a free choice. So there's a huge difference between you know I live in a town with 100 bars, and 99 of them allow smoking, 
uh, to being I live in a town with 100 bars and none of them allow smoking because it's illegal. Uh, so I don't think anyone is being coerced to be around smoke if we allow a few places to open that specifically cater to smokers. For liber- if we're libertarians, did we even need the science of secondhand smoke to justify banning? If you want to ban smoking in a private place, you can, of course, do it. But it's always struck me as odd that if they – let's say they found out that secondhand smoke was – Good for you, you know. It was it, it, you know lengthened your life or something, or help help prevent lung cancer. Um, people say like I, I don't like the smell. I don't want to go home smelling like smoke. I, I want to go to bars that don't have smoking in them. I mean, I don't need to prove that my neighbor's music uh, that is like that is loud and, and annoying me is like physically hurting my ears to get him to stop doing that. Right? I don't have to prove that. And so, you know, just having property rights, annoyance is good enough. It, that's good enough from a libertarian standpoint. So, so in some ways, the search for the secondhand smoke thing was not necessary if you had a good definition of property rights. Yeah, I agree. And they – people tended to they, – they would argue both sides. Like in the D.C. smoking ban, uh, there was a group called Smoke Free D.C., and they actually had a website where they listed all the smoke-free bars and restaurants in the city, which I think at the time was well over 400 venues. Yeah, and they, by they, demand. Right. Yeah. And so they they would simultaneously argue that this is a profitable move for business to, businesses to make and also that they should be curious to do so. <laughs> and, and so the question is why? If this is profitable, why do we need to coerce people? Well, the question – I think came to the workers, yeah. um, workers' rights, and that was, you know, the the idea that you shouldn't have to go to work. Uh, let's say you want to work in the hospitality industry and you want to be a bartender, and that's a comparative advantage of your skills. You shouldn't have to go to work and be exposed to toxic waste or toxic chemicals. Right, and and I think there's there is a valid point to that. And as you, some people may know, I've worked in the bar industry many times myself, and I'm, I'm glad that places I've worked in have not been uh, smoke-friendly. I prefer not to be around it most of the time. Uh, but I don't think you can tell people they can't do that job. Uh, and so we, we've gone from trying to assure that people who want to work in hospitality don't have to be exposed to smoke to forbidding them entirely from ever offering a hospitality space to smokers. And uh, you know, one thing I've seen with tons of people in the industry is uh, if you if you go to a bar at closing time, as soon as the customers leave, the bartenders start smoking. <laughs> you know? And uh, you I know, imagine that smoking is not uh, amongst bartenders is probably not representative of the population. No, all, I think it's it's guess. probably higher. Yes. Um, and and I've talked to business owners uh, who ask me when it, yeah, I live in Oregon, and they'll they'll come to me and say, "Hey, I want to open a smoke friendly bar. Like, what do I need to do to?" What hoops do I need to jump through to do that? And they never believe me when I tell them that it's actually impossible now. It's completely yeah, illegal. Yeah, you tell the story. Was it Oregon where they built the 25-foot? No, that was – It was Washington. Washington, yes. Yeah, so and uh, th- this was a place in Washington uh, that has a sister bar in Oregon that has a smoking lounge. But they, but they're grandfathered, right? Yeah, they're yeah. grandfathered in. Uh, but this one in Washington wanted to do it. And so the, their lawyers looked at the law. Uh, and Washington is extremely strict. You're supposed to be 25 feet from doors or windows to smoke. Which means that mo- a lot of places can't even have a patio you know, to, to be from any door or window. That's a, a lot of space. So in Washington, you'll see people huddled by the street <laughs> a lot. Uh, but th- this bar figured out that, you know, what if they had a 25-foot walkway deep into the building? And what if it was staffed only by owners, not employees? So only three three guys who own the place would ever be in there. And you had to be invited in. It wasn't a public space. And I imagine they had like a filtration system and everything. Oh, yeah. Too. Yeah. 
So they spent more than $15,000 on this, uh, trying to build a space for smokers. And literally, as soon as it opened, the health inspectors came in and said, no, you can't do this. And that's the kind of thing that, uh, to me, as someone who values the freedom of adults to trade with each other, uh, is a pretty clear imposition on their rights to do so. I remember... I wasn't here at the time, but the time when Christopher Hitchens spoke at Cato, were you working here when that when he was so. here? I think it was about 2005. He spoke about smoking bans and, and he had a, a great quip saying, you know, at the end of the day, all they had left were workers. It was, you know, just workers who had no choice but to work in a place that didn't want to be exposed to smoke, but they had to work there. That's who were reforming the world for. And he, you know, he pointed out, you know, just the ridiculous of being like, I don't think that person exists. I'm not sure that there's a person who, who can't get a job, uh, except who doesn't, who doesn't want to work around smoke, but can only get a job working around smoke. Uh, and if that person does exist, we've reformed the entire world for that person. Like we've, we've said no smoking anywhere because of a hypothetical person who may or may not exist, which I think is an interesting point. And the thing I, you point out that the question of, why why wouldn't we have passed a law that just said you could you, you have to either be a smoking bar or a non-smoking bar and you should declare it out front and whatever um but i don't know any what cities did that why did everyone go so much to the banned smoking side yeah. everywhere and i think that comes down to how much we stigmatize smoking now and i think so many of these arguments like you said are a fig leaf that give people the justification for clearly coercing other people uh, as as they do with these smoking bans and with other measures. Uh, so in worker health was that first step. And, and one thing I also talk about is if you were really concerned about worker health, secondhand smoke exposure would be fairly far down the list. And things like logging, fishing, driving, you know, these are all, uh, if you look at actual fatalities, far more dangerous. And I wonder how many people who uh, think it's absolutely terrible that anyone should ever work in a smoking bar you know, then take a Lyft home or an Uber home from someone who spends their entire day driving. Mm -hmm. And we actually know that driving you know, kills 40,000 people a year in the United States. And from an uh, occupational hazard, it's also one of the biggest killers. Or if you, like I, I also talk about seafood, you know, people fetishize things like Dungeness crab, where it has one of the highest fatality rates of any uh, fishing job. <laughs> but we make TV shows glorifying it like Deadliest Catch. Uh, so... I, the idea that no worker should ever have the right to make the choice to go work in a smoke-friendly establishment, to me, is uh, taking that example way too far. And at that point, you start coercing owners, workers, and patrons and denying them any space where they can enjoy this. Uh, and that comes down to just stigmatizing smoking. Uh, and we see that especially once we get to outdoor smoking bans, where we're now kicking people out of first patios, then parks, then beaches, uh, and then entire downtown areas where it really becomes a class issue more than anything. How much? Yeah, how much is is this about class? Do you think at the end of the day? I think at this point it's just certainly up there. And if, if you look at who smokes cigarettes, uh, you know it's gradually become something that people with lower incomes and less education do. Uh, and sometimes it's explicit. Like I use the example of uh, Eugene, Oregon, which is usually seen as an extremely progressive city, uh, pretty close to me in, in Portland. Like it's it's more more progressive than Portland even. Uh, but they they passed a or at least they talked about passing a law banning smoking in the entirety of downtown, and they were very clear about why. And it was because there were people loitering. Then they perceived that as bad for business, and so it, they were. It was just a pretext. Uh, they weren't actually worried that you know secondhand smoke was killing people on the sidewalks, or at least they weren't seriously worried about that. It was just how do they make downtown more welcoming by getting rid of these people? It is a question of as soon as your tastes diverge from. The ruling class uh, in your your taste of vices, 
um, then you could be on the chopping block, so to speak, in terms of getting it banned. We, I mean, we had alcohol prohibition, um, which itself was a strange story, but the, the lawmakers were pretty convinced that if they wanted to drink, they could continue to drink as, you know, they had secret distribution channels in DC and all this stuff. So there's a very big, and you point this out too, the not for, for thee, but not for me, even, even with smoking bans. Yeah. Cause the, the places that get exemptions are, you know, high end cigar bars, which I personally enjoy quite a bit, <laughs> but it's I think like, like Shelly's here in DC. Yeah. Which I love. Uh, but I don't think that should be the only option. Uh, and I was pleasantly surprised, uh, last year, Barbara Ehrenreich did an interview with Slate where she talked about smoking bans as a war on the working class. And you know, she made the same point uh, about how she goes out and she sees workers in a big box store or an office who probably have fairly low paying jobs. And smoking is one of the few things they get to enjoy during their day. And they're huddled outside in the wind or the cold and the rain and you know, in an alley somewhere you know, with no comfortable space because there's no place for them to go anymore. Uh, and you know, we usually think of opposition to smoking bans as a libertarian or right-wing issue. Uh, but there are certainly people on the left now, too, who are looking at the way that these bans are basically exiling people of lesser means uh, from their homes and from workplaces and from public spaces uh, and starting to object to that, too. So now uh, we also have this concept of third-hand smoke. So, so second-hand smoke was – I mean, I think you put it correctly – some, some some risk over a long period of time, but nothing to freak out about. But but we, they just moved right on into third hand smoke. So what's third hand smoke? So it's it's something you can perceive. It's the residue that's well, left. At yeah. least you can perceive it. Yeah. So, fourth, fourth hand might become completely invisible. <laughs> right. So yes. So it's it's a real thing in the in the sense that it's a um, a substance. You know, like if you if if you've had a jacket on and you were smoking outside and then you come back in and now there's you know, a fragrant or not so pleasant smelling residue on your jacket or that's left on the sheets in a room or it's whatever's left behind when you smoke. And so, you know, the substance of the smoke falls down and coats things. So it's out there. We know that. Uh, the question is whether it's something to be really concerned about. And, and the way that this came on the scene is kind of funny. There's a pediatrician at Harvard named uh, Jonathan Winnikoff, who's he's probably not the first person to use the phrase, but he's the one who's popularized it. Uh, and he was written up in the New York Times and Scientific American and newspapers all over the world a little bit about 10 years ago uh, about his study on third-hand smoke. And the idea was that it's dangerous and people need to be concerned about it. The funny thing was his study was a phone survey. Literally all it was was he called up uh, – well, he didn't do it himself, I'm sure. But you know, somebody working for him uh, conducted a phone survey uh, of random adults, uh, explained the concept of third-hand smoke to them and asked them if they were concerned. And then they got to write a story everywhere about how there's not enough concern about third-hand smoke. Yeah. And again, third-hand smoke is made of tobacco smoke and it decomposes. So at some hypothetical level – it could be bad for you, and you know that's are, true of a lot of things, <laughs> right? And, and there are certainly people uh, like I wouldn't say, uh, you know, go smoke a cigarette on your baby's swaddling blanket and then go wrap your baby with it. You know, there's there's some very common sense things uh, to talk about there, uh, but it's been really blown out of proportion uh, and in ways that once stigmatized smokers. So Winnikoff described smokers as emitting toxins. Uh, so even now, just you know, sharing the elevator with the smoker is an assault on the non-smoker because you know, they're assaulted with this third-hand smoke that's toxic and could be killing them. Uh, so there's really no evidence yet, and they'll admit this in, in research papers, that 
you know, they know that if they take these substances and they they give you a really high exposure or they give cells in a culture or a rat a really high exposure that there's some bad effects. Uh, but there's really no way to study it because how do you find someone who is exposed to third-hand smoke for a long time but not exposed to second-hand smoke? <laughs> this, is, this is a population that basically doesn't exist. But in the press, they, it's been talked about for 10 years and they'll put out all these studies and they get millions of dollars to study this. Uh, and and they'll, I've seen releases saying that third-hand smoke may in some cases be worse than first-hand smoke, which would be absolutely wild if true. But there's obviously <laughs> no evidence of that. I mean, smoking, is, smoking cigarettes is one of the worst things you can do from a health perspective. There's no circumstance in which third-hand smoke compares. Uh, and one described uh, the idea that there are hotels where people can still smoke. Uh, and then workers come in and change the bed sheets, and they called this a problem of global proportions, <laughs> which, which I think there are some global problems that might be more pressing than just smoke on bed sheets. Yeah, just a few. So what does it say about the public health establishment? Uh, that's one reason I really like your book. It's because in my work with drug war, a lot of this stuff is, ends up being the same where uh, you – you get a perception of the user. So even with, with illicit drugs like marijuana, it begins with a perception of the user. Uh, you get a hyperbolic, you know, idea of how harmful something is. Like marijuana is going to make you into a stark raving lunatic. And then the fact that the ruling class doesn't use marijuana at the time made it very easy to ban, for example. And now since smoking is class based, it's just a form of class, class warfare. Another one is soda. Soda has become a class-based beverage. I mean, you can have every, uh, you know, every girl, uh, you know, who's an upper-class thirty-something girl, you know, drinking Lacroix, but you would never see them drinking soda. It's, right. it's almost impossible to imagine drinking a big drink, gulp is a class yeah, drinking, marker. Now. Drinking a big gulp with a cigarette is a, <laughs> is a class marker. Um, and so, the, and so, what does this say about the public health world? And also, specifically as it pertains to smoking, how is this related to the master settlement agreement? I, which I think is a really fascinating thing you pointed out. Yeah, this this is an interesting development. So, the master settlement agreement was a uh, a lawsuit settlement between the the big tobacco companies and all fifty state attorneys general back in nineteen ninety eight, uh, when the states were suing the tobacco companies. Uh, to be uh, compensated for their Medicaid costs, essentially, and Medicare. Um, long, complicated issue, but basically at the end of this, part of what the tobacco companies agreed to give up was funding their research arms that were admittedly not doing the best work. You know, they, they certainly put out a lot of flawed work. Uh, but the situation uh, that existed before that, which I think the best – the best depiction of this is Thank You for Smoking, the, the fantastic book and movie, uh, where back pre-master settlement, if uh, a public health group said something bad about cigarettes, you know, the reporter gets off the phone, calls up the Tobacco Institute and says, hey, what's your talking point to counter this? And obviously, there's a lot of misinformation, but uh, that critique forced the anti-smoking movement to be honest and to do good work. Or at least a little bit more honest. Yeah. 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 yeah like, I mean, it, it at least gave you a debate. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, two things changed. One, those research arms went away uh, on the tobacco side. And two, money from cigarette sales through the MSA got directed to all these nonprofit groups, which now had a huge war chest to fund anti-smoking research. Uh, and so uh, Michael Siegel, who's you know, came up through the anti-smoking movement and has done uh, a lot of work and he's testified against tobacco and companies, he's a big smoking ban advocate. Uh, so his credentials are, are very, very solid. Uh, but he now critiques the anti-smoking movement because he 
he says they they became free to feel like they could just say anything and uh, journalists in particular just don't have anyone to go to for a critique and they don't think they need to have one you know anyone who's seen as being anti-smoking is on the side of the angels uh, so reporters i think uh, bear a lot of responsibility for failing uh, to grasp how things have changed since the 90s uh, and, and not, that's why maybe 60% drop in heart attacks just was repeated endlessly. Right. In, in very reputable places like CBS News or New York Times. Uh, and same thing, uh, you saw claims that uh, 30 minutes of exposure to secondhand smoke would make your risk of heart attack the same as the smokers. Is a claim that a lot of people made. Uh, and then the thirdhand smoke stuff, you know, just easy to get the headline, easy to get the story. And very hard, or maybe at the the bottom of the story, there might be a note about how nobody has actually associated this with any harm yet. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, the, this, these stories just get out there. And, and I think journalists have failed to adapt to what the current dynamic is and don't really see how ideological the anti-smoking movement has become. Uh, and so they don't turn a skeptical eye on some claims that, you know, with, with just a little bit of background in uh, how scientific publishing works, you might want to push back on a little bit. Well, there's an issue in the public health world in general where run if public health is run amok, it can be very dangerous to freedom, um, especially if you don't take preferences into account. I, I gave a speech in Australia, which is pretty anti-smoking. Yeah. <laughs> it's about 35 Australian dollars a pack, I believe, maybe up to 40 now there. And everything is plain packaging. So they all have rotting teeth and stuff yeah. on them. And, uh, you know, but point out the fact that you still had a rate of smoking in Australia at about 15%, which is about what I think it is the United States. And if you understand the fact that smokers on average as a ex-smoker, um, if you ask them how dangerous cigarettes are, they tend to overrate how dangerous cigarettes are. They think they think it actually increases their lung cancer risk more than it actually does. So if you take those together, if you say this person in Australia thinks the cigarettes are more dangerous than they actually are, is paying $35 a pack for cigarettes, then smoking must be incredible for that person. It must be <laughs> the best part of their day in terms of revealed preferences. And the only way to do the public health thing is to ignore their preferences as either illegitimate or a product of addiction, which is it can be the same thing. Ill illegitimate because it's just dirty and you shouldn't have to do it, uh, the, the causing too much externalities or the, the product of addiction. I'm not sure addiction means that you, you should take that away. And so what public health people do with smoking, you wouldn't do with anything else. Like, like hang gliding – the reason hang gliding is legal is because people – it's fun. But if someone was like, I don't care about the fun of hang gliding, it has too many problems with people breaking bones and things like this. If you didn't care about the fun of hang gliding, then you would make hang gliding illegal. And it seems like we have to get the same thing going with tobacco. Yeah, and a lot of these measures are, I think at the end of the day, just punitive and stigmatizing. And I, I think the graphic warning labels are a perfect example of that uh, where they're – there's not a ton of real-world evidence that putting those labels on affects behavior too much. I think there's a couple studies that show that it actually uh, increases smoking. Or, or Yeah, uh, cigarette yeah. sales went up in Australia recently, yeah. <laughs> which is yeah, not what was intended. Co yeah, the, collect all the boxes. You know, you got to get the long one and the mouth one. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, and it's like you said, the um, – oh, yeah, so the evidence that, that went for them, like you said, about revealed preferences. Mm -hmm. uh, the way the the first studies were done on this was not real-world. It was not putting these boxes out in the shops and seeing if people quit smoking. It was more like survey data or uh, focus group data where you take smokers into a room and you show them you know, these graphic warning labels and you ask them, does this make you less likely to smoke? 
Well, yeah. I mean, what's the answer going to be? <laughs> talk, talk is cheap is the number one rule of economics, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, but you, know, you saw tons of stories uh, that are never followed up on. You know, that say, you know, several years ago, you know, how Australia is going to wipe out smoking, and it's this very optimistic case about how this, you know, making smokers look at these ugly pictures is going to solve the issue. Uh, but where's the follow up three or four years later to look at how it's actually worked out? Uh, and it, nobody does that. <laughs> And from a public health standpoint, I mean, smoking is, as you pointed, it is bad. Smoking cigarettes is particularly bad, but alcohol is extremely bad. You have cirrhosis of the liver and other fatalities from drunk driving, but they're not putting labels on alcohol. I mean, well, you I, say I, that not, now. Not give them any ideas. <laughs> well, in England, they actually kill. are trying. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a, there are public health groups in England, and this isn't an issue I follow super closely, but uh, Chris Snowden. Christopher Snowden, yeah. yes. Who, who, who has been on the show, yeah. Yeah, and he wrote a great book called Velvet Glove Iron Fist, and uh, he warned years ago, you know, you're, if you're enthusiastic about playing packs for smoking, liquor's next, uh, and junk food is next. And there are groups in England who have promoted both of these ideas now. We'll see if they get traction. I think... Uh, Liquor is not yet so stigmatized that that'll be an easy push, but uh, well, that's yeah, that's the point. It's it's not about what actually is the comparative public health harm. It's about stigmatization and yeah. whether or not the particular vice is enjoyed by the ruling class. I think is is what a lot of this is. There was a a great book called Smoke Free that came out a couple of years ago by uh, Simone Dennis, who's an Australian anthropologist, and so she actually went out and did field work among smokers in Australia. Uh, just to, to talk to them and see how they were reacting to things. And one of the, the points she brought up uh, when these graphic photos came out is she actually talked to smokers who would uh, completely irrationally try to get the images that they thought wouldn't affect them. So like if they had a family member who died of lung cancer, they wouldn't want to get the lung cigarette pack. You know, they'd want to get, get the a heart different one, one. <laughs> you know, which obviously you know, makes no sense. But th this is the way these things are, are perceived. And now we have the next thing, which I guess a propitious time for your book to come out. But now it's about vaping, which was under the – I mean, that's what I do now. And it was under – you know, people didn't really notice it. I was a pretty early adopter for vaping. Uh, I don't use the jewel, so – but the uh, – but it, now it's gotten pretty crazy. And it's the same thing repeating itself, it seems like, again, with, with not not a lot of evidence, the precautionary principle with public health playing a huge thing. But – but people seeming to just not like – I mean they're, they're for the patch and gum and things like this. But because you have this motion that looks like smoking and vapor that goes out of the air, like they're, they're not happy with this at all. And the fact that people like it. Yes. And, and the fact that the people like it. Yes. And it's been – they've been called it the, uh, the triple goal of the anti-smoking movement, which has really defined it for decades. You want to wipe out smoking. Uh, you want to wipe out the harms of smoking. And you want to wipe out the tobacco industry. So the, these are their three goals. Uh, and I think most people would agree that uh, one and two are unobjectionable. You know, I mean, depending on how you go about it, you and I prefer non-coercive means. But I think we would both agree that if more fewer people smoke cigarettes, that would be great. Cigarettes in particular, yes. Yeah. I'm not, like, with you, though, I don't think that eradicating nicotine is this should be the goal of the world. Right. Nicotine use. Yeah. And so e-cigarettes came out, and this just threatened the ability to achieve all of these goals. They started getting a foothold again. Yeah. Yes. Well, you're, you're still wiping out smoking. Uh, well, some people will say smoking, vaping is still smoking, which, of course, is nonsense. It's completely uh, different substance. Uh, there's no burning, um, but you're still you're not wiping out smoking-like behavior. You could say um, you're greatly reducing the harms of smoking from everything we know. Uh, if we were to if we could 
snap our fingers and switch all 34 Amer- Americans, 34 million Americans who smoke now to take up vaping. Uh, I don't think there's much question that they would live longer and have fewer illnesses. Uh, but some of these vaping devices are made by tobacco companies and or companies that could become like tobacco companies. And so there's this skepticism uh, and even sense of being offended within the anti-smoking movement uh, that these means would come about not through government, not through pharmaceutical companies, uh, but through recreational brands uh, and really from the bottom up. I mean, it came up from users kind of hacking their own uh, systems together in, in, in a large part. Uh, but yeah, the idea that nicotine use can be, if not safe, then at least much lower risk and also enjoyable and openly done uh, was is very threatening to the ideology of the anti-smoking movement. Uh, which just wants to see nicotine wiped from the face of the earth, essentially. Well, it seems interesting because if you, if you say you, you know, for years, everyone at HHS or just public health in general have been trying to figure out how to reduce smoking. And no one could ever figure out a really good mechanism to do that. And then this, this vaping comes up, which, which has pretty good demonstrated elimination of smoking. And that's what they, you'd think they'd been looking for forever. But instead, they just go right after that and attack it, uh, which is disconcerting to say the least. Yeah, and you saw that uh, also before. Uh, you know, back in the '80s, the tobacco companies had tried to make a safer cigarette, uh, and they failed. Um, the The product combination just wasn't there yet. The the products they made didn't taste good. Nobody liked them. They were hard to use. Uh, they actually spent a lot of money and lost it. Uh, <laughs> and it's kind of some funny stories about how they tried to do that. Uh, but yeah, at one point, uh, tobacco companies were actually trying to convince the government to help fund research into how to make a safer cigarette. And the response from the anti-smoking movement was, no, nobody wants that. We just need to eliminate smoking, which at the time of the 80s was probably right. Uh, but now we know there are other options. Uh, and I think the other one that illustrates that is snus in Sweden and uh, in Norway now as well, uh, which is a form of oral tobacco, uh, which is very different. Like If you're thinking of you know, like American chew and people spitting everywhere – Snus is very different, uh, both chemically and in its risk profile, uh, and in the fact that it doesn't make you spit all the time. Uh, and we've seen, you know, Sweden has both lowest smoking rates and lowest uh, tobacco-related mortality in Europe uh, because people have made the switch starting in the 60s. They got away from dangerous cigarettes to a safer way of enjoying nicotine. Uh, and it's really interesting. I, I went to Sweden uh, a couple months ago, actually, to, to do some research on this. And the the casualness of people using snus there is almost shocking as an American. Yeah, I've, I've like, been there too. Yeah, yeah like they ha- they actually have stores where you can go and like mix your own flavored of snu- flavor of snus. I went into bars and the bartender you know pulls one out and offers me one. <laughs> it's it's uh it's very disconcerting if you if you're ideologically opposed to tobacco and nicotine use, you're not going to like this. But it's hard to say – it's hard to look at Sweden and say that the health effects of this have been bad when you know, they have lower uh, tobacco-related mortality than anyone. And as you, you're – in the subtitle of your book, The Creative Destruction of the Cigarette, that's, that's an example of that. Yes. There's an epigram in one of the chapters of your book I'd like to read. It's a very good quote. The freedom to smoke ought to be understood as a significant token of the class of freedoms. And when it is threatened, one should look instantly for what other controls are being tightened, for what other checks on freedom are being administered. The attitude of a society toward the freedom to smoke is a test of the way it understands the rights of people at large. For at any time, all the time, a quarter to half of all the deaths in the world are puffing of, of the world are puffing away at cigarettes. Um, this is uh, 
Oh, sorry, a quarter to half of all the adults in the world are puffing away at cigarettes. It's Richard Klein's cigarettes are sublime. Um, it's, and do you think we can normalize? I mean, is it, do you see this getting to a point where we can turn tobacco into a normal vice as opposed to a and start respecting the freedoms of smokers, or is there, is there just too much headwinds in the uh, public health establishment and culture? I think it might happen, but I think it one is going to take time. And two, I think it might not be in the United States. I've become very pessimistic about the future of, of tobacco in the U.S. Uh, I think you you might see it in uh, other countries, and then we might again we might we might repeat prohibition essentially, uh, where we go too far on the restrictive side, uh, and then have to backtrack when we see what the rest of the world is doing. Uh, and, and one of the last things I talk about in the book is you know, these two approaches to tobacco regulation: you know, one being very liberal and open and the other being very top-down and centrally planned. And if, if you look at vaping, I think a couple of years ago, uh, people were very optimistic uh, in, like, say, the FDA, uh, and with Scott Gottlieb in particular, who you know, has a background with the American Enterprise Institute. He comes from a sort of Republican background. Uh, and he had this idea that from the top-down, they could centrally plan the tobacco market by taking some products off and letting some products stay on, and we're going to have off-ramps and on-ramps to nicotine, and we're going to tweak all this with our our wise view from above, and uh, eventually we're going to get cigarette use away and only have vaping or safer things. And then I think the past few months where we've had this moral panic over vaping have shown that that doesn't work because all it takes is one bad news cycle for every person in Congress, every reporter, every public health group to come out and pass these emergency bans. And that whole vision is now just completely blown up. Uh, so the point I try to get back to is, uh, you know, however we look at vaping and however the data comes out as more studies are done, we always have to start at this foundation of respecting adult choice. Uh, and we, do, we, do, we shouldn't try to plan everything from above, but give people accurate information and take, try to pick the best look at the risk profile we have, but start with the idea that it is ultimately an adult person's body and their choice what they do. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r slash freethoughtspodcast. You can follow us on Twitter at freethoughtspod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.